You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. The other day, I needed some black socks. And so I looked in my dresser, did not see any black socks, went to my wife, Courtney, and said, hey, babe, do you know where I might find any black socks? She said, have you looked in your sock drawer? And I said, I, I did, but I'll, you know, let me go back and I'll double check. Went back, looked in my sock drawer, no black socks. Hey, babe, there's no black socks in the sock drawer. And she says, okay, I, I, I think there are. Did you look in the bottom? Okay, I'll go back, I'll go back. I look in the bottom of the sock drawer, no black socks. Hey, babe, babe, there's no black socks in the sock drawer. Did you look in the back, in the bottom? Because I'm pretty sure I put them in the back, in the bottom of the sock drawer. I go back, I look in the back, in the bottom of the sock drawer, and there are black socks. (laughs) I cannot even confidently assert the non-existence of black socks in my sock drawer. I tell you that as a parable for your future contemplation as you think about what we talked about last week and how we pursue and seek the knowledge of God and also as a transition into what we will talk about this week because it brings up a very important term an important concept, the idea of falsifiability. There are some claims that are falsifiable. The claim, there are no black socks in the sock drawer, is a falsifiable claim. It can be proven to be false. This idea distinguishes Christianity from every other worldview and religion, every other religious claim, at least that I've, that I've come across that I've ever heard of. Almost all other religions are based on an individual person claiming that they receive a divine message, a divine revelation from God. That's where they get their credibility. That's where they get their leadership authority. Now, there's no way that you can falsify the claim that someone received a personal, direct, immediate revelation from God. On what basis would you confirm or deny such a claim? Now, you could accept it or you could reject it just because you want to or don't want to or for a variety of other reasons, but it's not falsifiable. And then Christianity comes along and sits in a distinct category. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is useless. Now think about what he's just said. All of the teachings of the Bible, useless, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. All the ancient wisdom passed down, useless, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Christianity makes a claim that an event happened in space and time, that Jesus Christ died and then was raised from the dead. And Christianity itself says, if that event did not happen, you should dismiss the entire religion. Pull the plug. Paul would, go to, Paul would say it this way. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
He says, that's how you should live your life. Now, assuming you wanted to start a religion, the worst possible thing you could do would be invent a religion that is falsifiable. At least if you want this religion to, to succeed. But because Christianity is based on a historical event that is falsifiable, as we examine why we believe the things we believe about our faith in general, and Jesus in particular, we've got to start with this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. If it's true, everything changes. If it's not true, we should dismiss all of it. So if you're beginning an investigation into Christianity as a, as a religion, and you're deciding if you would like to become a Christian, you should not start by asking, do I find these teachings and this lifestyle helpful? You shouldn't start there. You should start with, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Now, if you're examining other religions, I would encourage you to examine them based on if you find them helpful. Do you fancy yourself more of a Buddha style or a Joseph Smith style of person? It's great questions to ask if you're examining other religions. Christianity couldn't be examined that way, at least not in the beginning. You're forced to deal with, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And if the answer is yes, what you like or don't like becomes way less pressing of concern because you are too busy bowing down to him. So let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I want to do today is lecture style present an argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to show you the way that one of the ways the Bible argues for it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. So this is at the beginning of the chapter where I just read the excerpt where Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and our faith are useless. Before he says that, he presents an argument. For the reality that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead. So why don't you turn there, and that'll be our anchor passage for today. And I want to do lots of content for you. Uh, as I said last week, I'm going to cover a good bit. In some places, I'll talk fast, so please listen fast. This will all be recorded. And so if you catch uh, something or if you hear something and you're not quite sure exactly what I'm saying, or maybe you missed a part, you'll feel free to go back and you can catch the video or the audio of it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read together verses 3 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. That's, they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the summarized argument that Paul makes here, he says that Jesus died for our sins. He says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared after this resurrection to hundreds and hundreds of different people that he left behind large groups of eyewitnesses who all claimed the same thing, that they had seen Jesus alive after he had died. And he even says that all of these eyewitnesses, are most of them, are still alive. They can be checked with. You could fact check this claim that they saw the risen Christ. So the way I want to frame the discussion today is borrowed from a philosopher named William Lane Craig. He, uh, has, we've got some of his resources are linked and available on our series website, whyimachristian.com. 
Let me read a little excerpt from him as a bit of setup. He says, If, for the sake of argument, we approach the documents of the New Testament, not as inspired holy books, but rather simply as a collection of documents written in the Greek language, handed down out of the first century, telling this remarkable story about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, without any assumption whatsoever as to their reliability. The same way we would approach other ancient documents for history. You might be surprised to learn that when ancient historians approach the New Testament documents with this attitude, that the majority of scholars today accept that that the majority of scholars today accept the central facts undergirding the inference to the resurrection of Jesus. I want to emphasize that I'm not talking here about conservative scholars or evangelical scholars. Rather, I'm talking about the broad mainstream of critical, historical, New Testament scholarship today. The work that's done by professors who teach at secular universities and non-evangelical theological colleges. Amazing as it may seem, most of them have come to agree with the historicity of the central facts undergirding the resurrection of Jesus. Just so that we're clear, he is not saying they all believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's saying there are facts surrounding the case for the resurrection of Jesus that are broadly accepted as true, historically, verifiably true. So what I'd like to do today is explain some of the historical facts surrounding the story of Jesus' resurrection And then I want to explain why they're broadly accepted as historical facts, both from Christian and from from non-Christian scholars. And then we'll talk a little bit about some theories about what might have happened based on those facts. So here are three facts around the story of Jesus' resurrection that have to be explained. We'll anchor our discussion today in these three facts and then some alternative theories. Number one, fact number one, the empty tomb. Fact number two, The appearances of Jesus alive after his death. And fact number three, the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. What I'd love to do is explain why most historians, most scholars do, not all, but most, the broad consensus. Most accept these three things as fact, as historical fact. So let's just work through them one by one. Fact number one is the empty tomb. Paul refers to the concept of an empty tomb in the section that we just read of 1 Corinthians. He says, I've delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried in a tomb, and that he was raised, no longer in the tomb, on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. So the story is that Jesus was buried in a tomb owned by a man named Jesus of Arimathea, uh, land ownership was legal back then, same as, as you and I. So this was documented. There were, it was known that this uh, was, in fact, Joseph's tomb. On Sunday morning, when some of Jesus' female followers attempted to put some burial spices on him in that tomb, they knew exactly where to go. It was publicly known where the tomb was. And then on that Sunday morning, following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by these women who had gone there. There are, there are more than four reasons. I'd like to give you four reasons as to why it's accepted as factual that the tomb was in fact empty on Sunday. Number one, there are six independent sources that state that the tomb was found empty. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and 1 Corinthians. 
Remember, we're, we're, we're taking these as separate documents from history. Now, we know that they've been combined as our, as our scriptures, but they are, in fact, all separate documents in their original forms. When an event is recorded, a historical event is recorded by two unconnected sources, then historians' confidence goes up that that event actually happened. The earlier those sources are dated, the higher our confidence. So for the, the attestation that the tomb was empty, we have six independent sources. Number two, the body of Jesus was never presented. And this is really simple, but as people began to claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, the easiest way to shut the whole thing down would have been for any of his enemies who killed him to just, to just present his body and say, this is a joke. I don't know what you're talking about. He's here. That never happened. In fact, Matthew reports that the Jewish leaders quickly leveled the accusation that Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples. And we know that this was a rumor that began to float around because actually later on, it's mentioned in the writings of, Just, of Justin Martyr and Tertullian. So the, this shows, this proves the body was actually missing because even Jesus' enemies were trying to come up with an explanation for why the body wasn't in the tomb. That's number two, why it's just accepted as fact that the tomb was empty. Number three, the tomb was not enshrined. There's no record of early Christians making Jesus' tomb a place of devotion or pilgrimage, which was very normal for religious observance at that time. Why is there not some sort of a shrine to Jesus at his tomb? Because his body wasn't there. For example, the week after he died, there was no reason for Peter to go to Jesus' graveside and remember him because Peter had breakfast with him. Uh, I actually went to Israel a few years ago, and I got off the plane, and I was like, oh, right, where's the tomb? And they said, oh, we don't know. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? This was a long flight. Why am I here if you don't even know? And they said, well, I mean, we've got some, we've got some similar places where it, it might have been, but we don't think it actually was. You could, see, you could see a graveside area that probably was similar to the one that he was buried in. And I was like, that's not the same thing. They don't know. There's no record because no one cared where the tomb was after time passed because his body wasn't there. There was nothing to go there to remember. Number four, this might be the most surprising, but for historians, it's one of the most powerful evidences for the reality of the empty tomb. And it's that women were the first eyewitnesses. Mary Magdalene is named as the first eyewitness of the risen Christ. And she's also uh, said to be the first one along with, uh, along with other women who found the tomb to be empty. We know from first century historian Josephus that the testimony of women at this time was not admissible evidence in courts because of the females, because of women's low social status. The early uh, pagan critics of Christianity actually latched onto this and dismissed the resurrection because of it. One example is from a second century man named Celsus who ridiculed Christianity as, quote, the word of hysterical females. So if this were a made-up legendary account, or if this were being fabricated or altered in any way, then the writers would have claimed that men were the first to find the empty tomb. This is pretty powerful evidence for historians that the story is true, because otherwise you wouldn't tell it this way. You would say Peter and John were the ones who first discovered the tomb was empty. So because of these four reasons and more, it's broadly accepted as historical fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty. This is uh, Joseph Krimer, professor, uh, professor of New Testament studies at the University of Vienna. He says, quote, Most scholars by far hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. So the tomb was empty. Now, that's just one fact. Plenty of reasons why the tomb might have been empty. Lots of plausible theories. 
But any theory has to account for the other facts as well. So let's move on to fact number two. The appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This is one of the places where 1 Corinthians 15, our our primary passage for today, is very relevant. Paul says in this section of Scripture that Jesus appeared, in verse 5, to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then he says, most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles, and then last he appeared to me. Now this letter, this 1 Corinthians letter, was written 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. And Paul, in it, lists the eyewitnesses, says it was individuals and groups who saw Jesus alive after, or at least they claimed, claimed to see Jesus alive after his death. And Paul says many of them are still alive. They can corroborate this. You could could seek them out to verify this claim. And this was a public document read aloud in the city of Corinth. Eyewitness testimony written in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And let's hear some of the people that Paul says were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He first mentions Peter. And if you're familiar with the story of Peter, nearly the whole time that he's with Jesus as a disciple, he is screwing up. Sometimes he gets it right, and you can bet money on the same page, he will screw up royally immediately following when he gets it right. There's a point in which Jesus says to Peter, you are operating as Satan in my life, which is just not what you want to hear from your Messiah who you're devoting your life to. When Jesus is being killed, Peter is fearful He will not even acknowledge that he knew Jesus to a slave girl who's asking him a question around the fireside because he's worried that word might get out and that Peter's life could be on the line because he was associated with Jesus. Something happens in Peter's life because in the book of Acts, in the early church at the very beginning, Peter is the one who stands up in front of everyone and says, Jesus is alive, I've seen him. The authorities say, we're going to beat you, throw you in jail, maybe kill you unless you recant. And Peter says, you can decide what seems right in front of God, but as for me, I've got to tell people that Jesus is alive because I saw him. So something happened in Peter's life for this to be such a dramatic transformation. Now, Paul says it's because, and Peter claims in his writings in 1 Peter, it's because he actually saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Paul says that there was a time in which Jesus was in front of and interacting with 500 people at once. So it's not wishful thinking. It's not a hallucination. He goes on to say that James was someone who witnessed the resurrected Christ. You know that this James that he's referring to is the brother of Jesus? So I have a sister. Who has a sibling? Okay, most of us have a sibling. My sister's wonderful. She's great. I love to spend time with her and her family. We have a good adult relationship. We're friends. I look back on our childhood fondly together. You know, if rumors started spreading that my sister was God, though, I'm going to need to to clarify a few things. (laughs) What would it take for you to begin to believe that your sibling was God incarnate? Whatever it would take for you, that's what it took for James. 
I mean, he, he goes on to be a father of the church, testifying boldly, my brother is God. Pretty compelling witness, I would say. Paul even lists himself in this as an eyewitness. If you're familiar with the story of Paul, he was a Pharisee out to kill and stamp out the Christian movement as it began to take off. He was responsible for murdering Christians simply because he hated what they were saying and teaching. And somehow something happens in his life where he goes from trying to kill Christians and stop the movement to being one of the main recruiters for it. And what he says happened is that he experienced, encountered, saw, and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. So we have just in this one uh, snippet in 1 Corinthians 15, very good grounds for believing that various individuals and groups under various circumstances saw Jesus alive from the dead, or so they claim. That's not even to mention that in the four Gospels and the book of Acts and Peter in his letters all include claims of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Many of those who made those claims going on to live very different lives afterwards. So, New Testament scholar from the University of Göttingen, I'm sure I didn't say that right, Gerd Ludemann, who is not a believer, actually says, quote, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Which leads us to our third fact, that the disciples truly believed that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Right or wrong, they believed it. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. After the crucifixion, Jesus' followers were, they were devastated. They're hiding in fear for their lives. Uh, Jewish people at that time had no concept for a Messiah who would be executed by the state. Their only concept of a resurrection was a universal event on Judgment Day at the end of the world, and it was a resurrection where the entire curse would have been lifted. So to them, if sickness and dying on the earth still happened, then the resurrection had not happened. That was how they thought. It would have struck them as nonsensical for God to resurrect one person but not remove sickness and death that plagues all of us. If you want to uh, go in on this, uh, a scholar named N.T. Wright has an 800-page book that he wrote called The Resurrection of the Son of God where he presents all the historical data to show Jewish people at this time had no concept and no way of even coming up with the idea of an individual resurrection. As well... Under New Testament law, anyone who was executed by hanging or crucifixion was under the curse of God. So what the crucifixion of Jesus revealed to Jesus' followers was actually that the Pharisees were right after all. That Jesus was in fact a heretic who had blasphemed God and now he was under God's curse. So the crucifixion was a catastrophe for them. It was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. And yet somehow, in spite of all of this, the disciples came to believe that God had risen Jesus from the dead. Even under threat of death, they never took that back. And in fact, we know from history that all of the disciples, all of the apostles were eventually killed because they continued to claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. So I don't know what sort of expert you are on human beings, but if you're familiar with lying, then you are aware that people lie in order to improve their condition. That's why we lie. We believe it will improve conditions for us. We don't lie 
to make our lives worse. That's not how we work. And yet every single one of these apostles eventually go to their death for their faith, never taking it back. Let me rattle off how these men died. So James, the disciple, was beheaded with a sword. James, Jesus' brother, was stoned and clubbed to death. Bartholomew, there's some conflicting stories, but most believed he was whipped to death. Philip was either hanged or crucified. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was impaled with a spear. Matthias was stoned and beheaded, just to make sure he was really dead. Thaddeus, believed to either be clubbed to death or killed with arrows. John actually survived being burned in oil, so he was lucky for that. Then he got exiled. And Peter was crucified upside down. And through all of this, not a single one of them recanted or took back their claim that God had risen Jesus from the dead. Not a single one. Facing pain, facing hardship, facing hardship. As Blaise Pascal says, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. For this and for some other reasons, it is historically certain that whatever actually happened, the disciples truly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, let's take a breather. Content dump so far. I got another one coming. So let's just, let's just pause. And let's make sure we're on the same page as far as what it is that we're, that we're talking about. I, uh, this morning I was thinking about this. So I grew up around church. I don't know what your story is. There was a, a song that came to my mind this morning. The song goes like this. It goes, uh, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. Anybody know this song? A few of you? Okay. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. How do you know that Jesus lives? He lives within my heart. Now, if God exists, then it is also true that we can know him experientially. So our own personal experience can, in fact, be a reference point. The song's not wrong. If God exists, it makes sense that we can experience him. My own personal experience can, therefore, be a reference point. The song's fine. I understand why it was written that way. Uh, it wouldn't sound as good at the end of the song to say, you ask me how I know he lives, and we say, because I find it to be the most plausible explanation for the historical data. <laughs> but I want to make sure that you're hearing me. What we're doing today is not talking about or examining personal experience. We're not anchoring our trust that God rose Jesus from the dead in personal experience, although it is a valid reference point. And I bet many of us who are followers of Jesus would be able to tell stories of the confirmation that we have in our own experience that Jesus is alive and he's at work in our lives. We've got circumstances and experiences and events that happened and ways that we came to faith and ways that we've seen God move that we could all testify to, and those are valid. It's just not what we're doing today. What we're doing today is looking at what we know in history and trying to make sense of it, okay? And we've got three facts that can be known as facts from history. That the tomb in which Jesus' body was laid was in fact empty. 
We've got attestations to post-mortem encounters with the risen Christ. And we've got a group of disciples who truly believed that he was risen. And so our question is, what is the best explanation for those facts? Any theory we come up to, we'll come up with as to what happened has to account for those facts. Now, this is where the disagreements arise. There's not a lot of disagreement about those facts. There's some, and honestly, at this point, you can get a book deal for anything. But there's, there's a lot of disagreement as to what is the most plausible explanation for those facts. What I want to do with the rest of our time is give you a few alternate theories to attempt to take care of all the facts, to explain all of the facts in a way that's plausible. So let's just work through some alternate theories for what might have happened that would explain the facts, but would also show that Jesus did not, in fact, rise from the dead necessarily. Alternative theories. The first one I'd like to do, and I want to spend the most time on it because I do believe it's the most compelling to folks in America. Number one, alternative theory, is that this is a legend. It's the legend theory. I find this to be sort of a default view for most modern Americans. It just strikes us as impossible that it's true. Therefore, it must be a legend, and I shouldn't give it any consideration or any more of my time. I don't think it's actually a plausible explanation. I'll try to prove that if I can. I got six or seven reasons why I do not believe that the legend theory is possible. A, the timeline doesn't work for this to be a legend. It doesn't work. The simple answer to this objection is that there's not nearly enough time elapsed between Jesus' resurrection and the birth of a church, of the church, for the legend to develop. We actually know from history that people were worshiping Jesus as God immediately after his resurrection. We've got documentation of hymns that could not have possibly been legendary because they came about way too soon. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians in chapter 2, Paul actually quotes a hymn that had already been written that's about Christ as God. In 1 Corinthians 15, what we've already read, the way that Paul languages these three verses, verses 3 through 5, is he says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. So let me read some information about those, those phrases there, again from William Lane Craig. Here's what he says. Speaking of that section of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Paul uses here not only the technical rabbinical terms for received and delivered with regard to the information that he's passing on to the Corinthians, but also verses 3 through 5 are a highly stylized four-line formula which is replete with non-Pauline characteristics. This has convinced all scholars that Paul is, just as he says, quoting from an old tradition which he himself received and then in turn passed on to his converts in Corinth. This tradition probably goes back to at least to Paul's fact-finding journey to Jerusalem around A.D. 36, when he spent two weeks with Peter and James in Jerusalem. Now, when you recall that Jesus was crucified around A.D. 30, that means that this information goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion. So such a, so, so short a time span and such personal contact in this case make it idle to talk of legend with regard to the information in this formula. 
All four of the gospel accounts are written inside the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Scholarly consensus is that the gospel of Mark was written about 30 years, maybe a little bit more, after Jesus' death, around AD 65, AD 70. Matthew and Luke were written around a decade or so later with the Gospel of John about a decade after that. So not enough time had passed for the legends to have arisen. In other words, these accounts weren't written, these accounts weren't written down centuries after transmission, but within the lifetimes of the people who had been eyewitnesses to their events. So in their book, The Jesus Legend, authors Paul Eddy and Gregory Boyd say, the fact that this story originated and was accepted while Jesus' mother, brother, original disciples, and Jesus' opponents were all still alive renders the legendary explanation all the more implausible. It's hard to understand how this story came about in this environment in such a short span of time unless it is substantially rooted in history. The timeline doesn't work for this to be legend. B, number two, the style of the writings is historical reportage. The style is written like it's historical reporting. In his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, author Richard Bauckham says that good ancient historians ordinarily interviewed eyewitnesses and then documented that by naming them in their work. All right, I don't know if you've had to write a report where you submit it to your boss or a professor and you hand it in and that person, he or she, looks at you and says, oh man, you did, you did end notes. I wanted footnotes. And you're like, who, why does this matter? Who cares? So ancient historians didn't use end notes or footnotes and instead the custom of their day was to cite their sources by including names in the stories. And if you read the Gospels looking for that, that's exactly what you find. So for example, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark mentions Simon of Cyrene, the man who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, and he actually names his sons, Alexander and Rufus, for no reason. He just says, and also just so you know, this guy's sons are named Alexander and, and Rufus. In other words, he's giving his sources. When John is telling the story about Jesus in the garden, the night of his arrest, he includes the name of Malchus, the soldier whose ear Peter chopped off and Jesus popped back on. He just like references it right there, which would be an awesome dude to go track down and be like, bro, was your ear off? Like for real off? I need to know. Is there a scar? Show me the scar. The authors are listing their sources in their writings, which was the historiographical custom of their time. Their end notes, their footnotes. It's just what they did back then as opposed to what we do now. C, number three. I'm going in on this legend thing because I believe most of you, if you disbelieve the resurrection, you believe it was a legend. And I want you to see that's not a plausible alternative theory. C, or number three. Legendary accounts don't sound like this from antiquity. Ancient legends are not written like the biblical documents. In fact, the documents that were written much later, you might have heard of these, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, these were written about 300 years later, and they have some wild, fantastical, legendary elements in them. There's one that says that Jesus came out of the tomb 60 feet tall with his cross floating behind him. Another one says that as a kid, Jesus got frustrated with a bully and he just like threw him up on the roof. These were written about 300 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They do, in fact, sound like ancient legends, and all scholars dismiss them as being true or historically verifiable or valid in any way whatsoever. They sound legendary, and they are, in fact, legendary. So C.S. Lewis, who is a literature professor 
among other things, explains it like this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, speaking of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. So he gets a little snarky at the end there, but you still see what he's, you see what he's saying. D, the documents could not have been changed later. They could not have been changed later. So sometimes people will say, what if they were changed later, modified later? What about Constantine? That guy was like a total loser, right? Isn't it Constantine's fault? Problem is, it would be impossible. Copies of the New Testament letters quickly began to spread. They were copied. In fact, they began to be spread into other languages and, and pushed out to the people who were meeting Jesus in other places. Even without the manuscripts that we have, church fathers, early church fathers before Constantine, quoted and wrote over 95% of the New Testament. So we can create 95% of the New Testament just from looking at the early church fathers' written sermons because they quoted Scripture so much. So for Constantine to make changes in the 300s, after all this spreading had happened, he would have to send ninjas to find every copy in every language to change every written sermon from every church father with whiteout that hasn't been invented yet and make it look like nothing ever happened in the first place. It's, it's just not possible. They were recorded too early to have been falsified. They were spread so quickly they could not have been falsified later. E, if the resurrection was somehow added in later... How did the church get started? The formation of the early church is actually powerful evidence that this isn't a legend. So you got to think, the disciples were destroyed by the crucifixion. Many of them, for some reason, afterwards, experienced profound life change, and the church starts. But if the argument is that the early church didn't actually say that Jesus resurrected, and that was added later then why did the early church form in the first place? What were they forming around? Certainly not an embarrassed, shamed, false messiah. So why did the early church even begin if it wasn't because Jesus rose from the dead and they believed it? F, number six, last one. Sunday became the day of worship. So why did the Jewish early Christians change their day of worship from Saturday, which had been the Jewish Sabbath for thousands of years, why did they change it to Sunday? Now, they say it was because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. But if Jesus wasn't actually resurrected, and these accounts are legendary, they were added in later, why did the earliest followers of Jesus who were Jewish change their day of worship? Is it your experience that religious people enjoy changing things for no reason? I, I am being dead serious I know of a church where people punched each other over changing the carpet. That is not an exaggeration. So why did Jesus' earliest Jewish followers switch their day of worship for no reason unless they actually believed that Jesus had risen from the dead? The, the legend theory is hard to make sense out of. It doesn't really hold up. Number two, the conspiracy theory Alternative theory number two, the conspiracy theory. Uh, they stole the body. The disciples stole the body. They made the whole thing up. Sounds very plausible at first blush. 
the disciples or someone else, they stole the body, they made the whole thing up, it was a lie, and they just, it spread. Unfortunately, this goes against historical fact number two. The disciples believed that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. They believed it. They died for it. These same disciples died for that claim that they had personally witnessed Jesus alive. That's why it's accepted as a historical fact. I love this quote from Chuck Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. If we reject the resurrection version of events, we've got to come up with a more plausible alternative explanation for why thousands of Jewish people would overnight come to believe a human being was the risen son of God and then go out and die for their faith. And then once again, if they were making it up, it's a horrible lie. It's not even productive. It doesn't sound plausible. There's too many things that sounded ridiculous to the original audience that they were sharing this with. So this is what Tim Keller says on a recommended resource for our series. He says, the claim that Jesus was Yahweh God, who should receive worship, the notion of a crucified Messiah, the concept of individual resurrection, the dullness of the early disciples, the unsavory crowd that Jesus attracted, these were highly embarrassing aspects of the Jesus story for early Christians. They went against the grain of both Greek and Hebrew worldviews and subjected early Christians to ridicule at best and abuse at worst. Christians had every incentive to play down or eliminate these issues from the gospel accounts, but instead, they are prominent. Alternative ish, uh, theory. Three, apparent death theory. I'm going to handle a few more just really quickly. Hang with me. Jesus didn't really die. He was almost dead, near dead, sort of dead, a little bit dead. On the cross, put him in the tomb. He revived, came back out. Disciples saw him. Oh my gosh, God raised him from the dead. That's how it happened. This one uh, just doesn't pass any sort of tests. First, you're saying that Roman soldiers who were professional executioners didn't actually kill a person and then didn't notice that they didn't actually kill that person. They're experts at torture and killing. It's what they did. That was their day job. They knew when a person was dead. So did the people who took care of the dead body, who wrapped it, who buried it. When a powerful government sees someone as a threat and wants them dead, they're going to end up dead. There's not going to be like a mishap. Also, Jesus was tortured so extensively, we're saying that he was mostly dead, partly dead, half dead, near dead, put in a grave. He just laid there without medical attention for three days and then was able to walk out of it, crawl out of it. His disciples see him and his mangled body with all its wounds still bleeding and gross are like, God has gloriously raised him from the dead. He's crawling. He needs medical attention. What are we talking about? It just doesn't make any sense. Four, the displaced body theory. Someone came, moved the body, didn't tell anyone. All right, but that doesn't explain the disciples and, and many other people claiming to have seen Jesus post-resurrection you got to account for all the evidence if you're trying to discount it, if you're trying to discredit. Last one, the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory, number five. People didn't really see the resurrected Jesus. They just hallucinated. They thought they did. It was like a wish fulfillment hallucination. 
They had a bad trip. I don't know what the mushrooms were like in ancient Israel, but that's what happened. So this requires a lot of leaps because it didn't happen just once. It happened many times. People claim they saw Jesus alive. It didn't come to just one person, but many people, not just individuals, but also groups, not in one place, but in many places, not just believers, but unbelievers as well. That's not how hallucinations work. And then even more, in the ancient world, if you saw a vision of someone, that didn't mean they were alive. That confirmed they had died and they passed on to the afterlife. So if they saw a vision of Jesus, they would have been confirmed in their belief that he was in fact dead and had moved on to the afterlife. They wouldn't have said, he's alive. That's not even how they would have interpreted a vision like that. So at some point, and there's, there are some more, and you can do some research and investigate on your own if you'd like. At some point, it becomes important to simply ask, why won't we accept the answer given by the people who were there? What is the best explanation of the facts? Our environment, our cultural time and place has trained most of us to have a naturalistic worldview where Deep down, we just think what can be seen, observed, tested is all that there is. There's always a natural explanation and cause for everything. Wait long enough, and we will figure it out. If last week I at least cracked the door a little bit on the possibility that God exists, then it is also at least a little bit possible that he intervened in human history and he raised Jesus from the dead. It's at least a little bit possible. And at some point, it becomes the most plausible explanation of the historical data. I know this was a ton of content that I just dumped on you. If you'll hang with me one minute, I'd like to preach for 60 seconds. The question that we just answered changes how we think about everything, literally everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you feel free to live however you want. If being a religious person sounds good to you, do it. If not, don't. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. Who cares? Because eventually the sun's going to explode, we're going to be gone, no one's going to ever know anything happened in the first place. Do whatever you want. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he's God. And whatever he says is true and right, whether I like it or not. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if you like it. So if you don't like the Bible's sex ethics, nobody in America does. If he rose from the dead, then you've got to consider that the guy who proved he was God is right, and maybe we're all wrong. You don't like what Jesus said about money. Not many people do. But if he rose from the dead, we have to listen to him, and it doesn't matter if you like it. But the church is full of hypocrites. Yes, absolutely. Not full. We still have room for you. But other than that, <laughs> yes. And the good news is that if he rose from the dead, it means he's able to forgive our hypocrisy and yours too. Church history is full of injustice. It absolutely is. And the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of the day when sin and suffering and injustice will be no more. Okay, but I don't like the idea of wrath and hell. Honestly, I don't either. But what am I gonna say if Jesus rose from the dead? Am I gonna be like, I don't like it, therefore it can't be true? How am I correct the guy who rose from the dead? And most of you, if you're not a believer, you gotta, you gotta be thinking, this is crazy. Dead people don't come back to life. 
I know. That's why we're so excited about this one. That's the point. That's why we're here. And that's why we sing and do all sorts of other things that wouldn't, we wouldn't do if this didn't happen. One did. That's the whole point. So, of course, all our objections, all our concerns, all our questions, they matter. They need to be thoughtfully worked through. We actually do that all the time in classes and in sermons and in teaching and resources. We're always handling those sort of difficulties. But my point is, if Jesus rose from the dead, the extent to which all my objections and pushback matters plummets. It just plummets. And if he's alive, then our heart posture has got to be we sit down, we listen, and we submit to him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have preserved documents that can solidify and reinforce the experiences that many of us have had, where we've encountered you, where we know that you're there intuitively, where you've pursued us and intervened in our lives. We're grateful to have things that, that can support that, that can provide reasonable evidence for the things that we sense and know are true. That's the position that most of us as, as Christians find ourselves in, that we, we know it's true and it's nice to have some valid backup on that. And so thank you for that. Thank you that we've got historically reliable documents that we can look into and study and investigate. God, I'm very aware this morning that no amount of evidence changes a heart. That's not how it works. That in all of this, we require your spirit to, to make us alive, to cause us to be born again, to awaken us to you. So God, I just ask that you would, that you would move, that you would, uh, that you would encourage those of us who are Christians, that we would think through these questions in a way that builds up our faith. God, for those of us who are, who are here and, and, and we're not, Christians, we don't know what we think. Let's pray that you would just, that you would cause a, a, an argument or two to stand out in our minds. Something to think on later. Something that bothers us a little bit later. I bet from there you would work in the way that you worked in many of our lives in the room. So thank you for all this. Lord, I know that this was a lot. And so we just ask that your spirit would, would make good of it. Um, that you would give us some things to think through and process that would be good for our faith and that would build us up. And we ask all this uh, for your glory and our good. Amen.